Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Last week. Telegraph's defence and security editor Dominic Nichols and myself were in Ukraine to see what life is like on the ground in the country. All of those episodes are available to listen back to, including interviews with Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kyiv, Olga Stefanisha, deputy prime minister for European and Euro-Atlantic integration, and some more of our own reflections of our time exploring Kyiv and, for myself, Butcher. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today we discuss the latest updates from the invasion of Ukraine, analyse how Western sanctions are impacting Russian industry and society, and we talk about Germany's scramble to find alternative sources of energy. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 4th of August, day 162. And today, I'm joined by Assistant Foreign Editor Katie O'Neill, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, and our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva. I started by asking Katie and Francis for the latest updates from Ukraine. One of the big developments in the past uh, day or so was a warning from the United Nations over the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, which we know that since March, Russian forces have occupied. Um, And there have been reports since that Russia is using the nuclear plant as a shelter to store weapons. But there's been a fresh warning from the United Nations who are saying that they are storing ammunition really close beside and, and, and near to combustible materials, which obviously, you know, sends sort of chills up your spine, echoes of uh, a disaster of uh, the scale of Chernobyl um, come to mind, uh, the potential for that to happen there. But they're also saying the United Nations that Russia is using this nuclear plant to stage attacks. Uh, so not only are they storing weapons, as um, we have heard before, but they're also um, reporting that Russia is also using the nuclear plant to launch attacks. Um, the UN described the situation there as completely out of control. They are imploring the Russians to allow them to go into the plant to survey the situation for themselves. Um, but yes, they're, they're saying that basically Russia is using the plant to pummel Ukrainian positions on the Dnieper River um, as Russia is preparing that counter-attacking curse. And also we've kind of heard in the in the past couple of uh, hours and, and days that Russia is preparing to um, counter-attack uh, Ukraine as they are preparing that uh, counter-offensive in the region. Region of uh, Curzon. 
Thanks, Katie. Francis, do you want to add to that at all? Sure. Thanks, David. Good afternoon, everyone. So, yes, there's been considerable military activity, according to the Ukrainians, from Russia um, in the last 24 hours. So firing from tanks, barrel and rocket artillery in several parts of the country. But there's also talk of the creation of a military strike force by the Russians aimed at President Zelensky's hometown. Um, And they've warned as a consequence of that, that the Russians could well be preparing a new offensive um, in southern Ukraine. This, as Katie was saying, comes in the context of the Ukrainian counterattack. So clearly Russia trying to show that it still has the ability to launch offensive operations as opposed to just purely defensive. Obviously, all of this comes in the context of Russia holding swathes of the Ukraine um, south um, that it has, has, has held since uh, since February. Um, but it said on Tuesday, um, which we discussed on the podcast briefly, that this is Ukraine said, they recaptured 53 villages in the occupied Kherson region. So clearly both at the moment are trying to show that they are able to, to launch offensive um, attacks as opposed to just purely defensive. But as I say, this, this significance, of course, around President Zelensky's town is that it would be a coup for the Russians if they were able to seize it. But the very fact that the Ukrainians are talking about this as a possibility suggests that they um, want to flag it as an issue and perhaps show that they are going to defend it from Russian attacks. So that's quite an interesting development on the military front this morning. Thanks, Francis. Casey, can I come back to you? There's been an interesting update from the UK's Ministry of Defence who are talking about how the Russians are trying to protect some of their uh, their, their pontoon bridges uh, near the Anton- Antonivsky Bridge in Kherson. What, what have the Russian military been doing to hide their bridges from Ukrainian attack? Yeah, this came through in an update from the MOD this morning, but we also carried this report uh, in the Telegraph and the newspaper today and online yesterday. Uh, Russia is, has come up with kind of quite a novel solution uh, to prevent its bridges, which they are using as supply routes from being shelled and from being hit by those HIMARS um, that Ukraine is using so effectively, uh, having been uh, donated uh, or having received them from the US. So essentially what Russia is doing is deploying this technology. There is a specific uh, bridge that they have deployed it on that has been shelled by the Ukrainians. What they're doing is deploying radar reflectors along the side of the damaged bridge. And what that does is it creates an illusion of a bridge running uh, a parallel alongside it, which doesn't exist, uh, therefore allowing uh, the bridge uh, that, that Ukraine might want to uh, shell or to target to not appear on uh, satellite systems. So the idea is that the, instead of hitting the bridge, there's a phantom bridge that runs alongside it. The Ukrainians can't see the real bridge on their satellite systems. Uh, and instead, they attack the, the phantom bridge that doesn't exist. So uh, that's a development that we've had. The MOD are saying that they have evidence that this is these radar reflectors are uh, technology systems that the Russian forces are employing. Thanks, Katie. I know, I know you've got a lot on uh, the, the, the foreign desk today. So do you want to stay with us quickly before you head off and just tell us about this um, Am- Amnesty International uh, story, this report where they've accused the Ukrainian army of endangering their own citizens. What's, what's happened there and how, how has Ukraine reacted? Yeah, this was quite an eye-raising, uh, eyebrow-raising report that Amnesty International have uh, published today. They are accusing Ukraine of endangering their own citizens. And they say that Ukraine is doing this by using hospitals and schools as military bases. And they say that these schools and hospitals are often located in densely populated areas. Um, and by using them as military bases, they become uh, targets for uh, Russian forces. They're saying that it's not always clear 
clear that the civilians have been evacuated from these buildings before Ukraine goes in and makes them um, bases to you know store weapons or uh, devise attacks. Um, they say that in 19 towns and villages around Kharkiv, the Donbass and the Mykolaiv regions that uh, they have evidence of this happening. Um, what Amnesty is saying that being you know in a defensive position doesn't exempt Ukraine from having to adhere to international human rights laws. But naturally, this has been met with a massive backlash in Ukraine. Um, you just have to search Amnesty and Ukraine on Twitter to see quite a lively uh, response from Ukrainians who are condemning the tone of this report. Um, the Ukrainian foreign affairs minister has also said that this language is sort of creating a false balance between the perpetrator and the victim. And commentators are saying that, you know, or, or cautioning that this might give Russia a carte blanche to start shelling any, um, you know, buildings such as hospitals and schools that Ukraine might be using as military bases now that Amnesty has, you know, loudly declared that the Ukrainians are using these buildings as um, military operations on a widespread basis. Ukrainians are also saying they need to defend themselves and, you know, oftentimes the only place that they're going to be able to do that um, and to sort of set themselves up in is going to be places that are populated by civilians. Um, yeah, and they, they can't avoid defending themselves in areas with, uh, with uh, you know, where civilians still remain. Cheers. Thank you very much, Katie. Um, Natalia Vasilyeva, um, would you tell us that you've been writing a number of stories, all very interesting. Can we start with... Uh, your story about uh, plane repairs and plane parts in Russia. This is to do with the impact of Western sanctions. Uh, You've been looking at some internal memos from Russian airline companies. What have they been saying? Hi, everyone. Um, Yes, I thought that's that's one of those stories which are quite telling about um, the actual impact of Western sanctions. While we still keep saying that Moscow looks exactly the same as it did and there are no uh, visible signs of... um, you know, a considerable uh, decline in living standards or anything tangible on the ground. So um, that's um, so uh, the story that I wrote yesterday is about Russia's major airline companies. In fact, um, four of them have uh, written uh, internal memos, all pretty much about the same subjects, uh, in which they ask their pilots to um, try not to use their brakes too much um, as a means to spare resources as a way to um, uh, try and uh, push potential repairs and maintenance for the for the planes as far in the future as possible. Now, the problem here is that Russia's civil aviation industry, as um, many other sectors of Russian economy, um, has been hit by Western sanctions, meaning that um, if you own a, an airplane in Russia, um, you won't be able to uh, send it off for maintenance and repairs to the West and you won't be able to get any spare parts. Um, uh, Russia has had quite a robust uh, domestic um, aviation industry with Aeroflot, the flagship carrier, being um, um, priding itself on for example, owning one of the youngest fleets, as it uh, um, as it said in, in its ads just a while ago. So this internal memo, um, it basically prescribes pilots. Uh, it lists a number of steps that they should take to avoid, uh, to, to try and... Um, mitigate uh, wear and tear of the planes, including uh, um, as some suggestions to be gentle while braking and taxiing, to avoid water brake mode, to use uh, reverse engine thrust and not to use brakes. So that's 
um, uh, so that breaks one one have to be maintained as often as they would. And also, there, there's an interesting there's a separate memo which um, advises traffic control uh, to offer aircraft uh, longer slots for landing, so that the planes would have more time more time uh, to taxi off the runway, so that there wouldn't be you know pressure to get off the runway um, as quick as possible. Well, thank you, Natalia. That's just, I think, a fascinating, specific example of how Western sanctions are are having their impact on the Russian economy. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are many more. Francis, do you want to come in on this at all? Yeah, I just wanted to ask. I mean, how sustainable do you think this is, Natalia, long term? I mean, obviously, at the moment, this sounds like sort of short-term, almost emergency steps that are being made in an attempt to try and alleviate some of the problems. But do, do you, it, surely this cannot go on indefinitely. And if if not, what would be the long-term solution from the Russian perspective? Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is definitely a stopgap solution. Um, Russian officials have acknowledged that there is an issue that um, uh, pretty soon we're going to be seeing what they have described as cannibalizing planes, meaning that because you are not going to have direct supplies of plane part, parts, uh, they will have to be using uh, some aircraft for spare parts. So they will be literally taking off parts from one airplane and putting it on another, which needs repairs. Um, Russia has uh, at least four major airline companies uh, with a great number of aircraft. Um, so there is time. It's We're not going to see the entire industry collapse in a matter of months. Um, Russia's deputy prime minister in charge of civil aviation recently said that he thinks that Russia has about five years. Uh, I mean, the, the way he put it, he said, like, R- Russia can last for five years on the uh, aircraft that it has by by using some of the aircraft for spare parts. I mean, I think it's important to add that obviously Russia doesn't use all of its fleet um, it has at its disposal because, um, I mean, it's it's really hard uh, for me to say off the top of my head right now, but a great number of flights are not being operated right now. I mean, Russian airlines uh, used to operate hundreds and hundreds of international flights which are not operational, meaning that a lot of its planes are idle and uh, only a part of which are used for domestic flights. So, yes, I mean, it's a matter of years. Russian officials say that they're hoping to build uh, a national um, uh, national civil aviation from scratch to start building planes. Um, it's really hard to say how. It's going to be possible. Um, expert analysis shows that it really is not viable. So, yeah, so we are in this um, sort of waiting mode and um, it's all about those step gaps, gap solutions as, as this one. Well, thank you, Natalia. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, can we move on to your story? I think it's just been published in The Telegraph about a Russian student who's been sentenced for talking to the talking uh, Russian teacher, sorry, who's been sentenced for telling their students about the war. Where was this and what happened? Yeah, so that's... Um uh, that's really quite a stunning story, but but sadly, quite a typical one. Um, as uh, some of our listeners might know, uh, Russia adopted a war censorship law at the start of the war, which fa- in, um, effectively makes it a crime to speak out against what Vladimir Putin calls a special military operation, and the very word war is outlawed in Russia. Now, th- this teacher in um, the city of Penzi, about 500 
uh, kilometers southeast of Russia. She was caught on tape um, explaining to her students why they couldn't go on a trip to Europe. Apparently, there was a sport competition that they were now not allowed to go to. And um, she spoke very candidly to her students, telling them that Russia is a dictatorship and Russians are not going to be welcomed anywhere um, until they, quote, start behaving in a civilized manner. Uh, now, that recording uh, was apparently leaked, which she was recorded by um, one of her students, and it leaked online. It was it was published in May. If sorry, it was published in March, and shortly after that, she got a visit from uh, uh, FSB intelligence agents, and she was charged under the war censorship law. And this morning, she um, she was found guilty and given a five year suspended sentence. Now, I mean, this is absolutely outrageous, uh, but obviously, we have seen cases like that, and. Um, uh, one might say that she was lucky uh, compared to a councilman from Moscow who last month was sentenced to seven uh, years in prison for essentially doing uh, uh, things exactly like that, uh, which was speaking out against the war um, at a public meeting of his um, um, council. Well, thank you very much, Natalia, for that. That's absolutely fascinating. And as, as you said, faintly terrifying as well. Um Francis Sternley, you've been reading about uh, Russian fascism uh, in The Economist and you had some thoughts. Can you, can you tell us about that? I know we want to have a bit of a discussion with, to hear Natalia's views on, on this as well. Yes, well, it really nicely connects to what Natalia was just talking about. Um, There's a fascinating long read in The Economist, I believe it was last week's issue, um, called Vladimir Putin is enthralled to a distinctive type of Russian fascism. And essentially, it talks through everything that's happened domestically uh, in Russia since the invasion and puts it into quite a nice sort of chronological um, perspective, but also uh, talks about it in quite a lot of detail in perhaps certain ways that haven't really been thought about before. And as I say, particularly contextualizing it as as a sort of fascist movement. And so just to give a sense of that, it talks about how the war sort of changed everything that Putin was able to impose a de facto military rule and censorship. Of course, he blocked Facebook, he blocked Twitter, Instagram, all remaining independent media. He's isolated the country from Western influence. He's chased everybody objectionable in his eyes out of the country. Um, any public statement that challenges the Kremlin's version of events is punished by or is punishable by a 15 year prison sentence. And so the piece sort of talks about this and, and, and says that this new political reality was only unima- was unimaginable only months ago and one could argue is from the Kremlin's sort of power struggle perspective is its most significant achievement um, in in the conflict. It's not actually anything it's achieved in Ukraine but what it's managed to achieve back home and it cites certain academics talking about describing this as a sort of disconnected society, Uh, quote those FX are driven by the notion that it's impossible to protect the internal legitimacy of the current leadership and key citizens loyal if Russia remains relatively open and linked up to the global networked system. Thus, it has been in Putin's priority for some time to disconnect from that system. And then it goes on and talks about how the engine of fascism doesn't have a reverse gear, um, that it will be impossible for, for Putin to sort of turn back from this brand of authoritarianism. That it, in its very nature, it's expansionist and want to expand not only 
into the sphere of people's private lives. But because of the kind of language that we hear constantly being spouted by um, propagandists in Russia, it was almost no doubt want to um, continue geographically as well. And of course, this piece is is framing this as, as long, long term. It's saying essentially that the language of fascism is now part and parcel of the Russian state as it currently is. And as a consequence of that, that we're going to be living with this for a long time. So I think essentially the reason I wanted to flag this piece, I'm fascinated to hear Natalia's perspective on this, is it's essentially trying to argue that this idea that this war is short is a short-term blip in a central trend in Europe, that, 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 that things can reopen with Russia once the conflict is over, that there could be a negotiated settlement. This is the final nail of the coffin of that argument, because essentially what has been created by this war, the climate, the culture in Russia, is such that it will not be possible to turn back from that. And if anything, it will become much, much worse. So that's the, 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 the thesis of the argument. But as I say, fascinated to hear Natalia's perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, um, I totally agree that, you know, what's obviously it's, it's, it's been a very long way down for Russia. We have, and myself as a journalist, I have covered um, a protracted uh, but very much deliberate um, um, decline of, of human rights, of, uh, um, of the way the government, of, of how increasingly... Um, Intolerant, the Russian government has uh, been of dissent of anyone who was trying to cross or even question the government line. And uh, obviously, Russia woke up to a completely different reality on uh, 24th of uh, February. And up until that point, um, anyone could speak with, um, anyone could talk to uh, Russia as a regime, as a pure autocratic regime, which was built on a as someone has put it, as a managed democracy on a um, societal setup where um, the government had that, where the Kremlin and the president had a tight control over the political scene, but where citizens were left to their own devices. They could do whatever they want. This was a country which had a flourishing uh, cultural scene, uh, which did have free media, however, under attack they have been. But uh, we did um, ended up in a pure uh, dictatorship um, after the invasion as Russia shut down the remaining option media and when it did start going after anyone who would as much as um, say if they were against any of the government policy and the very act of the opposition to the government policy became um, a crime uh, under, under the Russian law um, so I, I know this, this, there's been quite a bit of a discussion um, um, among Russian political scientists whether Russia qualifies as a fascist regime or not. Um, one of the main um, points of arguments have been that fascism requires an active participation, right? That it requires um, it requires the citizens to go out there to, to march um, hand in hand with the leader. And we haven't seen that happen, but also uh, we have seen so-called flash mobs across regions with the letter Z, which has become the symbol of the uh, Russian invasion, and increasing increasing pressure on school teachers, on um, civil servants to 
somehow show their um, support for, for the military operation, as they put it, by posting something online or by speaking out. I mean, it might not seem like a big deal. It might not seem like, you know, a, a big Nazi rally in uh, Germany at the end of the 30s, but um, we are getting there, sadly. I thought also it's very interesting, and I'll come to Germany in a moment, that, of course, part of the way that the propaganda machine functions is that it, it seeks to sort of deny its innate and inherent fascism now by calling out other regimes as being even more extreme and more fascist. So of course, it points to America and sort of discord that's been sown, obviously, in recent months around uh, um Roe versus Wade, but also I was very, very struck by the usual suspects on state-controlled TV in Russia um, analysing Olaf Scholz and literally calling him a, a sort of Hitler copy and and saying that he is um, mimicking him in Hitler in how he delivers his speeches. So having a video of Hitler giving a speech and then having a video of Olaf Scholz giving a speech um, and, and also saying that his policy towards Russia is, is similar as, as, as Hitler's was, which of course is lud- absolutely ludicrous. And there's no way that Olaf Scholz is seeking to... Uh, uh, to, to invade Russia. So, uh, but it's fascinating that it's sort of strategy of effectively gaslighting Europe, you could say, uh, in a sense, and, and, and pointing to enemies that are fictional, but using the language of, of, of them seeking to be an oppressor of fascism, whereas actually they themselves are, are doing all of these things that come straight out of the fascist playbook. Yeah, I mean, if I might add, I think that's uh, that's absolutely stunning, especially what we've heard uh, in relation to Germany and uh, some things that we've heard uh, about Israel. Now, these are two countries that Russia has been very close with um, those past uh, two or three decades. Uh, Vladimir Putin personally has, as we might see, he has worked very hard to uh, build excellent ties with Israel. Um, that uh, which were non-existent under the Soviet Union. Israel was a main adversary for the Soviet Union. Um, and Putin, a German speaker, somebody who lives in this Germany, um, he also worked very hard to build a relationship with Germany. And it's, you know, um, starting from those massive gas projects to his personal ties to Angela Merkel. Now, all of this is completely in tatters. And obviously, what you hear on Russian TV you know, it doesn't really help that. Natalia, may may I ask, do you get a sense of the mood of ordinary Russians towards the war? Now we're coming up to six months in. Um, how how do you think ordinary Russians are feeling about the conflict and their attitudes towards Putin? And just on top of that as well, what about the people who've left Russia? Uh, are the emigres, the people who who, who fled, um, what's, what's their sense of the conflict? Do they think that they'll be able to go home anytime soon? Yeah, I mean, it's a very big question. Um, I would obviously uh, caution anyone from uh, paying any attention to opinion polls because when you come up to a Russian in the street or when you call somebody on the phone and if you ask them what they feel about the war, you're essentially asking them to say, yes, I support it, or you're asking them to say something that will make them... um, liable um, under the new war censorship law. Um, It's also, I found myself that uh, people are beginning to self-censor a lot. Um, I recently interviewed this car factory worker and 
we agreed on the start that that interview was off the record. I was not going to quote him by name, but he was very um, particular about not using the world war and saying, well, I'm going to call it a special operation because this word is banned, Uh, which is quite stunning. And um, in this environment, it's very hard to get a clear idea what what people really think. Um, uh, It's obviously there is a very big portion uh, of society that is strongly against it and we see it uh, manifested by constant very small probably very insignificant protests i mean every day there's a person here and there and in this town or that town um, just standing on the curb with a anti-war poster and it may not seem like a big deal but in a country where um, this can send you off to a prison for 10 years, that's actually, you know, means quite a lot. Um, in terms of um, in terms of people who left um, uh, in protest of the war or uh, whether they felt uh, endangered, they felt that they could be um, uh, persecuted for their views. Um, I know a lot of people have been back because they they just found it very hard to start a life, to find a livelihood abroad. Uh, but also there's a great number of Russians who never left in the initial months of the war, in the initial weeks of the war, who are now preparing the groundwork uh, to leave, who are you know being very strategic, looking for work, I don't know, selling off their cars and apartment. And in this sense, we're talking about uh, the middle class and we're talking about uh, the upper middle class. Um, as, I mean, it's also very hard to speak about figures, but the numbers I've seen uh, range from... 150,000 to half a million people who uh, may have left Russia in the aftermath of the invasion. Wow. Well, thank you very much, Natalia. Francis, I don't know if you want to comment or ask any further questions before we talk about Germany, or shall we, shall we move on to Germany? Well, I would just add to that, Dave, that uh, as was talked about in the past on this podcast, it is just extraordinary, those numbers that Natalia was talking about. And I think that it should be seen in the context, unfortunately, of a consistent trend in Russian history, which has been... Um, the erasure of suppression of uh, of a sort of intellectual class, middle class, however wants to articulate that. Um, of course, it happened in the 19th century. It happened then under the Bolsheviks as well. And, and we're seeing it again is that um, the... the it, it, what marks this out from from other regimes and perhaps during the Cold War is that the in the Cold War elites were rarely able to leave the, 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 for, for various different reasons. Whilst this time Putin is actually actively encouraging these people to leave, he sees them as being a hindrance to his intentions in the country. And of course, in the short time, that may well be true, as uncomfortable as it may appear to us. You know, it's that that the, 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 you cannot have a resistance movement or a large proportion of population being against you if you've lost some of those who are in positions of power uh, going elsewhere. It's just a statement of fact. However, in the long term, as we've talked about in the past, uh, a country can't prosper when you lose these people in the, in, in, in the long term. These are the people who, who, who develop the technologies, who work in the um, uh, blue-collar industries that, that essentially are the people that you are investing in 
in their youth to become something that will then boost the economy long term. If you lose all of those, then you're left with a country with an ageing population or a country of, of, of people who are obviously not able to work in all of these sort of more advanced fields of technology and everything else, which, of course, Russia will be reliant on if it continues down this path of trying to be a sort of sec- scientific and um, uh, military uh, superpower. So in the short term, it may well benefit Putin. But in the long term, I think it could be deeply, deeply harmful for um, for Russia and for the Russian state. And of course, that would speak to one of the threads in the Yale paper, which I spoke about um, in detail earlier in the week, which was talking about that whilst in the short term, the impact of this for, for Putin um, in, in terms of his sort of strength in the country may be um, uh, to strengthen him, that in the long term, the economic damage and devastation even that is being wrought on Russia, uh, he will not be able to hide from long, long term or perhaps his successors. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis. Um, Shall we, Francis, do you want to talk to us a little bit about what the news from Germany is before we move to our final thoughts? Sure. So uh, regular listeners will, of course, be uh, very familiar with me constantly talking about Germany and its ongoing energy crisis. Well, there's been an interesting development in the last 24 hours, which is the Germany's Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has signalled that the country will keep keep its last... Uh, remaining nuclear plants, of which there are three, of course, completely upending the legacy of Angela Merkel's policy to shut them all down um, in the wake of the Fukuyama disaster in Japan, but also as part of the sort of green agenda, um, which doesn't sort of trust the use of nuclear power for all of the reasons that we've talked about in the past. Um, So obviously this comes in the context of European countries scrambling around to find alternatives to Russian gas. And Schultz has said that it makes sense to continue running the three plants that were due to close. I mean, obviously, this will come as a a very welcome um, relief, not only to uh, to the countries in Europe that are reliant on on other energy sources, but no doubt from large portions of the German population. So I think we should see this in the context of it being a partly political decision as opposed to purely a pragmatic common sense one um, but obviously we weren't guaranteed to be um, seeing this so um, so in that sense it's welcome but it comes also on a very I think embarrassing day from Germany from a German perspective which is when you see the former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder um, uh, me confirming that he met with uh, the Russian president in Moscow last week. We knew that he was there supposedly on holiday. He told a reporter in Moscow that. But we now know that uh, the, the former Social Democrat leader who's obviously maintained personal ties to Putin and sits on the board of several Russian energy companies, um, uh, has actually met with Putin. And some of the remarks, I'd say, are, are well, um, to be predicted, but also still quite alarming. So he's told the uh, Russian, uh, sorry, the German uh, outlet Stern uh, that uh, the good news is that the Kremlin wants a negotiated settlement. That's what he said. Um, he suggests that the deal brokered by the UN and Turkey to reopen the Black Sea shipping routes could become the basis for a ceasefire agreement and said that both sides would need to make concessions to end the war. Uh, obviously, that has uh, sparked uh, fury in uh, in in Kiev, um, this idea. And then lastly, he also said that if you don't want to use Nord Stream 2, you have to bear the consequences and they will be huge in Germany, too. If things get really tight, there is this pipeline and we'll, and both Nord Stream pipelines. Um, and he goes on, could essentially reopen and, and alleviate things for German households and German industry. So I think we should clearly see this as a message from Vladimir Putin to Europe, um, 
reiterating his message that if you want to uh, resume things as they were, if you want to go back to normal um, as things were before the war, I'm here. I'm open to that. I'm happy to have a negotiated peace as long as I can keep the territory that I currently hold. Um, and and as long as we can return diplomatic things and energy ties, etc. Um, and so this is sort of dangling the carrot um, to a Europe which no doubt will be suffering in the coming months of, of, of as, as winter begins and autumn. Um, but obviously, as I say, this comes, I think, as a huge embarrassment to Germany, really. I mean, having a former chancellor saying these sort of remarks, who obviously is so closely tied to the Russian regime, um, and, and and benefiting from it financially himself, um, it, it, it leaves a poor taste in the mouth. Um, it, it just sort of it seems to me that he is essentially acting as a mouthpiece for for the Russian regime, and it just isn't a good look um, for Germany at a time when already it's um, strength on and uh, and, and uh, desire to, to 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 push back against Putin's actions has has been severely questioned. So I think a significant development and, and no doubt will cause um, frustration to some of our regular German listeners. But as I say, also a welcome uh, sense of what Olaf Scholz is 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 doing now on the on the energy front. But of course, it would be require much, much more um, than just having three nuclear power plants open to alleviate the serious, serious problem that Germany has on its energy reliance um, on, on, on Russia. Well, thank you, Francis, for that. That was very comprehensive. And of course, if, if you are in Germany and uh, have thoughts on this, do get, in, do get in touch. We obviously invite people to, to talk to us and pose your questions. But thank you, Francis, for that. I think we've probably come to the end of our time uh, here today. So may I ask Francis and Natalia for your final thoughts? What should our listeners uh, keep in mind over the next few days? Or would you like to sum up some of the things you've been reporting on and thinking about? Well, I'll give Natalia the final word. Um, I mean, I would just say that next week I'm very keen to cover the sort of the story of how Germany became so reliant on Russian oil and gas. And I'm hoping to speak to our regular uh, on the podcast in Germany, Dr. Thomas Clausen, to, to to discuss that further, because I think it's a real lesson here for, for all of Europe, which is um, how... The, a policy that can begin as as something that seems to benefit both sides, um, that there's sort of no um, uh, negative consequence because obviously it would it, it benefits your economy, it benefits your energy security, but also it supposedly opened uh, Russia to the West and, and in theory was meant to make Russia so reliant on the West that it wouldn't be able to do anything um, such as what it's done in Ukraine was a very, very naive view. But I think that there are a lot of people who are responsible for that. It's not just Merkel. There are numerous political leaders of generations of political leaders in Germany who have a lot of questions to answer. And I think that, as I say, because the lessons are so deep for how we approach foreign policy in the next uh, generation I think we'll be wanting to look at that in more detail so I'm still very much thinking about about the energy problem um, because at the end of the day it's going to be this which is really going to ramp up the pressure um, on Ukraine I think for in, in with regard to its western support as the weather turns. Well thank you Francis. Uh, Natalia Vasilieva would you like the final word? Sure. Uh, before I latched on to what Francis has just said, um, just a few words about what's happening actually in Ukraine um, on the ground. I think we've been talking about for a while already about a potential Ukrainian counteroffensive that um, Ukrainian forces seem to be laying the groundwork for one. Uh, now, this hasn't happened yet. And uh, as has been proven time and time again, um, all of the prognoses and um, forecasts regarding hostilities um, 
um, are very flimsy and I wouldn't really go far with that. Um, although I would definitely be um, very focused on on southern Ukraine and see what, what happens there as Russia's offensive in Donbass is clearly stalled. Uh, but yeah, com- coming back to what Francis was saying, I think uh, it is crunch time for um, Russia and Europe in terms of gas supplies because, um, you know, we're sitting here in August in the middle of a heat wave, but uh, they this is um, the crucial time for Europe to pump up as much gas into its gas storages as possible ahead of winter. And right now, Russia is... Um, supplying about 20% of what Germany typically gets. So if those supplies are not increased anytime soon, if they are not increased within the next month or so, then um, Europe will be facing this gas gas shortage and physically there won't be enough time to replenish those supplies. Now, that just brings us back to um, Olaf Scholz's visit to a um, facility in Western Germany earlier this week when he... Um, met reporters and showed them this gas turbine, which is at the um, heart of a dispute with Russia. And um, we just need to see whether Russia will have this turbine back and whether they will say, okay, we now have the equipment to put it back on the pipeline on Nord Stream 1 and increase gas supplies. So I think we are, um, we are looking at a crunch time right now in terms of gas supplies for Europe. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, making her debut with the Telegraph social team, Claire Hubble. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.